Hey guys, welcome to this bonus episode of our car podcast. And for those of you who have been watching uh, our videos, you will be familiar with the man to my left. Howdy, Paul. Hey, how's everyone doing? Paul, uh, you know, on Top Gear, they used to call the Stig, uh, which you were, by the way, uh, the tame race car driver. Well, I'm going to call you the wild race car driver. You're still living in the wild. It's true. I do live up in the mountains, you know, so <laughs> I'm still semi-feral, I think. <laughs> and for those of you guys, like I say, who've been watching our videos, uh, you know that Paul does all of our performance car reviews. And in this podcast, we're going to talk about a lot of fun things. Uh, first and foremost, uh, we're going to get into uh, what the Mustang's like as a track car, because you just got back from the Mustang program. I did, yeah. I was down down at Charlotte Motor Speedway for the launch of the Dark Horse, and I uh, got to drive that out on the track. So that was Quite interesting. And then, of course, we're going to talk about uh, various automotive topics, which Paul, I'm sure, has a lot of um, opinions about. For instance, should uh, supercar manufacturers be building crossovers and SUVs? Uh, but before we get to any of that, let's talk about you, Paul. Okay, if you're going to make me, right? You're I'm, I'm going to make you. Twist my arm. Yeah, so how did you become a race car driver? Um, so I, I started uh, driving actually quite late um, because I was forbidden from doing so by my parents uh, mm. when, I was, when I was younger. I've w always wanted to do it since I was a little kid. Um, my, my grandparents in England, when I lived there, I was born in England, uh, lived near a racetrack. Uh, and we drove by it every Sunday on the way to my grandparents' house. But my parents would never let me go there. So you know that thing, like the forbidden th fruit thing, right? Sure, they, yeah. They wouldn't let me have it, so that made it more desirable. So my brother and I both actually really were super into cars and racing because we were told not to be. <laughs> you know, uh, as much as, like, in America, the car has become part of the culture, I think in Britain it's even more so to some extent. Yeah, it, it's also very condensed there. So there's... It's, you know, it's a country that's as big as like, you know, Virginia, um, and, and, but they're like 20 racetracks, maybe 30. It's and incredible. So it's all, and so it's all very condensed. So it's very hard to drive to grandma's house and not drive by a racetrack. Um, so, so yeah, that's very much part of the culture there for sure. Motorsports is thought of there um, on the same level as things like soccer and stuff like that. So it's incredibly ingrained in the culture and it's not thought of. Uh, here you get a lot of negative stuff with racing. Um, you don't there. It's pretty much 100% positive. Yeah, and the other crazy thing about uh, the UK is they've had such a uh, glorious cottage industry of building cars, right? Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, you know, obviously you guys know the typical brands, Aston Martin, Bentley, right, uh, Rolls-Royce. But if you go back in time, there were hundreds, dare I say thousands of people building cars in the UK. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was big. I mean, it was all the stuff sort of... Um, well, I guess it was pre-war and also post-war, but it was funny, like a week ago I was at, at Road America for the IMSA race and happened to go with the group I was with. We went and did a tour of the Harley-Davidson Museum, which I'm not a Harley guy, but they talked about the British cottage industry there, like how that affected the motorcycle industry as well. Um, but yeah, it, it, even all the Formula One teams, with the exception of two, Ferrari and Alfa Romeo, are based in the, the UK. UK. Yeah, I know. And so when you talk about cottage industry, and then I was just talking about how close everything is to one another, that's the thing. If you need like machine work done, carbon fiber work done, like any work done, and then need to go test it at a racetrack, you know, you can go do that there very conveniently. Um, and so it's made motorsports a, a big part of the British culture for sure. All right. So as a young man, you, you were dare I say, intoxicated, <laughs> inebriated, with the smell of gasoline. I wouldn't use the word intoxicated, but I <laughs> infatuated. was infatuated. Oh, my God, was I ever. And so 
So yeah, and it wasn't like it was a banned thing. Like I remember watching Formula One races in England with my dad on TV. You know, the few that they used to show back then, and and um, and he, you know, he was always kind of into it. But it was more like that is not a profession. Like that's that's something you watch on television. It's not something you do. So. That was a thing that kind of delayed me um, all the way through. I never even raced carts or any of that stuff, and it wasn't until I was 24 years old. Uh, I'd switched majors in college, so I graduated late with a mechanical engineering degree and, um, and immediately went to Europe and entered a racing competition that I had planned to do, and it was money I had just saved up over the summer working construction, starting as a laborer, mm. uh, and then getting to be a punch-out guy and a construction superintendent. Uh, and then, boom, I'm off to Europe, and I win the competition. And that basically starts my motorsports career at a very old age, uh, in relative to racing, where you're supposed to be 16, 17. Yeah, I, I, I mean, look at the current Formula One field. At, 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 in your yeah. mid-20s, you're going to be like not aging out yet, but you'll certainly yeah. be one of the older guys. Yeah, and so that was what was really hard for, for me. It, like Even in that competition, they were... They were like, you're too old, you know, and, and I'm like, well, you know, it's based on how, fa how fast you are. And they're like, yeah, but you're too old. And so they, they made my life really difficult. And it was always hard um, because I started so late and I didn't have a karting background. And I was very naive. Um, I thought, you know, if you're fast, they'll just, you know, the doors will fly open for you. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's there's politics and racing like you wouldn't believe and nepotism and favoritism and then a whole bunch of of people showing up with millions of dollars that'll take that ride right out from under you. But through all of that, I, I scrambled together a career and, and managed to race and still continue to race um, to this day. And then of course, I've done a lot of other stuff along the way. Yeah, so um, Paul, one of the things that he does, and um, I, I gotta say, Paul, uh, you know, every race car driver I've met, and that includes you, uh, has to be a little bit crazy. And I'll give, you an, I'll give you an example of that. So every year, Paul Here runs Pikes Peak, right? <laughs> yeah. Right? And, and, and Pikes Peak is, for those of you, you know, the second oldest race in America. Yeah. I think India's a year, a year after uh, younger than India. Yeah. And, and basically, it's a hill. It's a race. It's a hill climb, a race into the clouds. You start uh, in, um, it's, it's not Colorado Springs. What's the little, Man well, it's Manitou, near Manitou. Manitou Springs, yeah, yeah, it's, um, Cascade, I think, is technically the town, but it's uh, it's right at, it's basically right at Crystal Reservoir on the Pikes Peak Drive, which is about at 9,100 feet is the, the start line, and then you go up the Pikes Peak Highway, which is just a normal tourist road, right, one of the highest paved roads in North America, um, and uh, ends at 14,115 feet, and yeah, we race up that every year, and, and it's awesome. And for all of you who, who are <laughs> unaware of that race, I'll give you an example, I think a concrete example of just how a steep and uh, I would say challenging it is, if you go up there in your car, you when you come down, halfway through they stop you and do a brake temperature yeah. test to make yeah. sure that you're not gonna, that's Lemco. going down. So imagine how steep that is going up. And then add to that, uh, you know, blind corners with 2,000 foot falls uh, yep. and all kinds of crazy we and trees weather and conditions, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it just, every year it varies. Uh, and so, It's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, or terrifying. <laughs> it's it's one of the great races, and it's it's to me every year I pinch myself and and say I can't believe they still let us do this. You know, that's like the the coolest thing about Pikes Peak is it's sort of this anachronism of how racing used to be and 
Um, and it's amazing. It's amazing to get to do. And you get to drive crazy cars up a crazy road, and that's just cool. Yeah, and I think part of that also is that it's still very down home. You know what I mean? It's, it is. It, it hasn't been like uh, corporatized, I no, guess. No, no. Which it's, is really cool. It's definitely a small operation. It's a great little team of people that do it every year that I'm friends with and there we're we're just like a family you know at Pikes Peak and that's what's really cool about it but when you think about this little thing is it like oh is it so it's just local Colorado hill climb like no Uh, a good third of the competitors are international like you get people flying in their cars from Japan and Australia and Europe and they come from all over because it is the literally the greatest biggest fastest most awesome hill climb in the world And, and, and and because of that uh, it's it's really cool. Yeah, for those of you who watch, let's, let's just give them a, a kind of a uh, something to calibrate their senses. For those of you who watch the Goodwood Hill Climb, uh, it takes what a little bit over a minute to go. No, it's there. forty seconds. I think yeah, is or, the record. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Whereas the record up Pikes Peak is just a little bit under ten minutes, right? It's, it's a seven fifty seven. Seven fifty seven. Yeah, so yeah. it's basically more than ten times as long. Yeah, it's twelve. 12, uh, over 12 miles, 12.42 miles, and 156 corners, and about 5,000 feet of elevation change starting at 9,000. So it's this crazy test. That's why the race was always so popular, because it's a crazy test of not only man, but machine. It's very hard to keep your engine from overheating going up there. Uh, Even the electric cars overheat going up there. They overheat their battery packs and their motors. So it's this incredible challenge from a technical perspective to build a car that can do that. Uh, and then to drive it, right? So it's it's cool. And so Paul's one of the crazy guys, uh, <laughs> and it's also one of the races that keeps saying it. <laughs> that, like, that like I think I think some of the best drivers in the world aspire to. Well, I, I mean, I, I would I would not you know humbly I would say okay that sounds great, but we do get really cool drivers there that come there and do the event, and they're always they come from IndyCar and you know all sorts of different disciplines around the world, and they show up there and they're always like okay, this is different. (laughs) And they have to kind of, you know, again, you have to sort of humbly submit to that mountain and realize that that thing is no joke. And you have to, you have to approach it very rationally. Um, You can't be crazy because you you, you literally wouldn't make it like you wouldn't get to do it year after year. I say that about racing all the time because people always think race car drivers are crazy. And it's like not the good ones, you know, the ones that sit there and, 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 and have a career doing this. You can't just, you know, take silly chances with something that can affect you you know you very personally physically and can kill you and um it's back to the ernest hemingway quote that there's only three three real sports in the world i think one is bullfighting it is good one <laughs> the other one is mountaineering okay and the other one is race car driving and it's like because they're they're those are sports they say in, in his quote is everything else is a mere game and you think about it, you're like, yeah, it's kind of true because those are the ones where you can die. Like, and so you're, you hold your life in your hands doing them. And, um, and that's what makes them cool because to me, that's what um, helps me focus is knowing that risk is there. I have a hard time, you know, typical like ADHD dyslexic kid that played in the woods and banged his head too many times, you know, and, and ended up with too many concussions and all that kind of stuff. And, and um, you know, it, it ends up being this this thing where you realize like it takes that level of 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 risk to get my mind to really focus and so that's why i love the hill climb or racing generally is it's the only time in my life where i'm like operating at 100 percent. yeah we'll talk about that when it comes to your book because there are a lot of great lessons that you draw 
uh, from your racing career and you can take into business world, you can take into general life. And we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's, let's just keep talking about you, though. And, and you're right, Paul. Sometimes, like, the closer to death you are, the more alive you feel. Yeah, and, 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 all, and as a result, the better you can perform. Mm. That's kind of the cool thing it, it, where you think, like, people will, will uh, you know, panic or they'll rise to the occasion. You know, and so that, that magic phrase, it's kind of an old-timey phrase, but it, you still hear it, but grace under pressure. Yeah. Right? And then, grace and, under pressure. And then just to be clear, people die in that race. It's kind of, it's not as bad as, like, the Isle of Man no. or, or every year, you know. Yeah. But still, people do die. There was a tragic accident of a motorcyclist, yeah. uh, I think, two years ago. That yeah, it was a few years ago. Where he passed away. Mm-hmm. But people do die. Uh, and um, They do. Statistically, though, here's the thing. Whenever it says driving on a racetrack or racing is crazy, per mile driven, it's safer to be on a racetrack than on a public road. And so that's something you always, like, can, you know, it's like, it's like people that are afraid of flying. You know, flying on commercial airliners is the safest form of transportation on the planet, including walking, <laughs> like anything. It's safer to fly statistically than to, to, to go any other way. Than It's safer than driving to the airport. So people have that same sort of presumption about racing, that it's incredibly unsafe, because when you watch it on TV, you see, you know, NASCAR crashing every race and this and that. But the cars are built to crash, right? They have these roll cages in them, and we're strapped in in a six-point harness. And so we're incredibly safe in the car, knock on wood. I've never been hurt in a race car crash. Um, and, and But I've hurt myself a lot on my mountain bike, mm. you know, or skiing, right? So, you know, statistically way safer than, than taking a bath, you know, so, safer than drive. So that's the thing to weigh against that. So two things. I want to say like eight years ago, there was, I think it was an M3 that went over the cliff. And if you yeah. watch the video on YouTube, it's almost like a comedy because it just keeps rolling. Yeah. It, never, it doesn't, it, you're like, okay, it's going to stop rolling. It doesn't. No, there was a big one this year too like that, where, it, but it just it happened truck, to be snowy it? Yeah. and old smoky. Yeah. 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 And this beam just keeps rolling and cars are flying off of it. And you're like, oh my God, these poor people they must be dead and then they just walk, they get out they get out and they look around <laughs> yeah. like what the yeah. heck happened just go to youtube and watch <laughs> a highlight reel of rally car crashes if you want to know like stuff you can walk away from like we're there in the woods doing a, a buck 20 and then just instantly stop on a tree or go sailing off a road um and and you know they generally just get out of the cars but racing again these cars are so safe um and so that's how you can push them so hard and not feel like you know, geez, I got a wife and kids. I shouldn't be doing this. It's like this technically is safer than me driving here, um, you know, in, in but, my road car. But the problem with that is that works on a, a intellectual level. So I could tell you this. I could tell you a fact, right? People are sometimes are afraid to road trip because they think they can get in a car accident on the highway because yeah. they see all. But the chances of you getting an accident are exponentially greater within five miles of your house that's it. than you know yeah. somewhere in Florida. Yeah, because that's where you drive the most. That right? you spend the most time there, <laughs> yeah. and you kind of switch your brain off when you get close to home too, yeah. because you, you do it almost automatically. So you're not looking, you're not quite as aware in those very familiar drives as you are in an unfamiliar drive, where you're like looking around, going, I don't know where I'm. I don't know this road. I'm going to pay attention. So, yeah, there's all of that that, that adds into it. But that's a good point. All right. So um, let's talk about um, your career as a Stig. Uh, yep. You were for how many seasons? 
Uh, it was eight years. Eight years. So yeah. eight seasons, basically. Yeah. You were the st- Stig on the first series of Top Gear USA, yes. which was Tanner Faust, uh, Rutledge Wood. Yep. And I can't... Adam something? Adam Ferrara. Was a comedian from New York. Yes. Uh, I would say that's probably the greatest trio, including you, quadruplet, I guess, uh, <laughs> of the American Top Gear. Because For sure. After, of, the, of the American one, yeah. After yeah. that, the ones that just seem to just can't get the, like, the chemistry yeah, right. Yeah. So... Uh, um, I think you can talk about this now, right? You can talk about yeah. it. Yeah. So what was it like being the Stig on, on Top Gear USA? It was um, it was interesting. Right. I mean, first of all, you have to say it was an awesome, amazing opportunity, right? It was very lucky uh, to be able to do it and to be able to do it for that long. It had a very interesting um, selection process where basically I had an hour on a racetrack to do two laps, one in a Mustang, one in an Aston Martin. Everyone had the same thing. It was this crazy, weird cone track on El Toro, which is where the Top Gear track used to be. And there were over 50 people that tried out for it. And I ended up being the only person that managed to put together a clean lap of this crazy course. And I got the job because of that. Congratulations. And, um, I was and so say the only one that fit in the uh, stick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, actually that was Paul's all, not the tallest that person. was all, that was all tailored <laughs> after the fact. <laughs> so yeah, I got the call that I had the job and then it was funny. I remember I was on vacation in Florida with my wife and we were at dinner and they're like, we need your measurements now. And I went to the hostess station, and I'm, I'm like, I need a tape measure. <laughs> to find out how So I went and stood in the bathroom yeah, got, got and like wrote it all tape. down on paper and, and got all my measurements and then, then you know, texted this information right back to them. It's just, it, the whole thing was like that. That was crazy. Like, I'm like a spy. Is it, is, it, is, it, is it an advantage to be smaller and shorter as a race car driver? Yeah, I for would think sure. It's like, it's, like, it's like a jockey, right? You no. Because yeah. the, the weight yeah, is yeah, important. Absolutely. They'll build a car around you. Like, even in Formula One, you know, like George Russell showing up um, in, in uh, Mercedes. That was a real problem when he substituted for Valtteri Bottas. Um, in, in, because he was so much bigger. Because he was so much bigger. And yeah. so his feet, he was wearing, like, cut-off shoes and just the foot box. His feet didn't fit in. And, and of course, he's too tall, so he's sticking up. And then aerodynamically, the aerodynamicists are going... We, we're going to have to get rid of your head. It's in the way of <laughs> our clean aerodynamics, you know. So there's there, and of course, then his hands are, you know, his elbows are hitting his torso while he's trying to turn the wheel, and it just doesn't fit. So, yeah, t- I remember um, the, the the guy that was like the ultimate example, IndyCar racer from the early mid two thousands, Cristiano Damata, um, and he was tiny. I mean, the guy was like five foot one or two, maybe. And he weighed like 120 pounds, and every team's like, we want him, you know. And and Danny Pedrosa in MotoGP, like a little tiny guy. And and that's just, you know, when you're looking at power to weight ratios, the the weight of the driver, right? And then, as I said, the aerodynamics, all that stuff matters. When, when you're looking at lap times that are, you know, a tenth of a second, yeah, or hundreds, hundreds and thousands hundreds matter. Yeah, and they're like, whoa, our calculation shows that to be, you know, so a I, measurable I w- time. I wish I had known that growing up because I'm Czech, and when <laughs> you I was- ate too much. Uh, yes, I did. More, I did it, too many dumplings. Too many, you should have smoked cigarettes. That's what they did in Czechoslovakia. <laughs> did too many dumplings. <laughs> yeah. so, so, so when I was growing up, uh, there were a lot of good Czech tennis players. Martina Navratilova ah, comes yeah. to mind. Amazing. And so my parents were like, you got to be a tennis player. I'm like, okay, if that's what you say. And then uh, I spent like, you know, eight years of my life taking tennis lessons, going to tennis camp. And then when I had worked my way up to like uh, the second worst player on the high school team, my coach finally. <laughs> All my, the way up. Yeah, in my senior year. <laughs> 
Like he looks at me and goes, Roman, let's face it, you're no gazelle out there. <laughs> and, and that's when I realized how important body type You're like, because uh, I'm a cheetah? And he's <laughs> no, like, no, no, that's not where I was going with that. <laughs> no, no, Mr. Pastiak was not <laughs> going Mr. there. Pastiak. I remember his name, yeah. He was not As he was walking into the door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then like, end up as a triathlete, right? Yeah, but it's like swimming, yeah. right? So swimming, there, there's four strokes, you know, back, breast, free uh, uh, and fly, right? Mm -hmm. And except for one of them, being tall is a huge advantage. So right. breaststroke is the only one where you could kind of be short. And all the other ones, you know, your wingspan is such a huge right. advantage. Right. So so being, you know, short and lightweight is a huge advantage for a race car driver, but we kind of digress. So so you, you, you made Top Gear, they fitted you into the Stig outfit. Yes. Uh, and how was it working with uh, the guys? And what, what was some of the most memorable moments? Um, there was, there's so many, first yeah. of all, because they just they put you into crazy situations all the time. And I'll yeah. say this about Top Gear. And they canceled the UK one because they put people in. Well, top. yeah, kind of. I mean, and you know, I worked, I worked at the UK show, and I still do stuff uh, for Grand Tour, yeah. and so I know all those guys and worked with them the quite British, a bit. The British trio, the British guys, yeah, yeah. and and uh, you know, Jeremy James and Richard and. The idea, and Andy Willman, who's sort of like the, the head producer, he and he and Jeremy came up with the concept of Top Gear while they were in school. It's a pretty well-known story. Um, and the Stig was just someone they called an anonymous person that no one knew at the school that was an anonymous character. And that's what the Stig was in the show, was an anonymous character. So that's where that, that name came from. But their goal was to try and hurt me. Like, they thought that would be funny. So they, they, would, they would always put you in the most dangerous situations and they, they, you know, they talk about health and safety and all that. But I don't see Clarkson being dramatic, right? Yeah, yeah. they just wanted things. To, they wanted things to go sideways, like quite literally. And if so, so they would give you scenarios where there was a high chance of failure, and um, and they would all sit behind the cameras, going, "This is going to be awesome." And, you know, you know, and, and luckily, there's only one time I ever damaged a car ever on the show, even oh. though I could have. Like, they would be fine with that. They had backup cars and all this. But um, it just it goes against my grain to hurt a car. Yeah, I'm like that, too. What, yeah. what, so tell me, what did you damage? So it was <laughs> just an Odyssey minivan, of okay. all things. But what I was doing with it, we were in downtown Detroit. And um, what it was supposed to be was me pulling up and doing, like, a little handbrake turn and then the guys were in cop cars, and they were supposed to see me, and then they were supposed to give chase. And we were in this blocked-off, you know, kind of run-down area in Detroit. Was this the episode with the Hellcats? Uh, no. No, no was that was later. Okay. I did that one, but yeah. this one was earlier with Top Gear USA. Okay. That okay. one was uh, with, Grand with Tour. Guy, that yeah. was with Grand Tour. Um, so, so anyway, I, I instead of the little wimpy handbrake turn with the foot brake, I'm like, I'm going to do a big Scandi flick, and I'm just going to, you know, huck it one way and then make it, rotate and do a big slide and I'm going to come literally sliding into the intersection and you know it curb to curb minivan no practice um, I, I hucked it in there and um, and on the slide I just clipped the curb but it wasn't enough like we actually used the car for the whole shoot it didn't even it didn't even blow the tire out but I but I hit the curb and I scratched the curb and um, and that was the one time and but you know we got the shot and that's we okay. went. We went so, on from there. So, what were some of the like coolest things that you got right, where it was dangerous, but you got it right? Oh, there, I mean, endless list of just crazy dumb stuff. You know that they had me, you do. Give me the top. I, three. I remember actually close by here, uh, yeah. down at PPIR, and this is very typical. So I give Pikes you like Pikes Peak International Raceway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pikes Peak International Raceway, which is an oval track down in Pueblo, Colorado, or Fountain. Um, and and just coincidentally happened to be there, and we happened to be doing driving on Pikes Peak the next day. But I was there. Um, 
And they just put me in a, when, when the last generation Corvette came out, so the C7, yep. so they had a C7 Stingray, that, and this is typical, that they had borrowed from someone that had got a really early delivery. So it was just someone's personal car. It had like a few hundred miles on it, wasn't even broken in. I don't know any of that. All they do is they walk me out of my trailer, they put me in the car, and then they give me instructions. And they Top were like, Gear USA. This yeah, one. Top Gear USA. Like, you're going to go up from here. I was on the infield. We want you to go up and, and take it up onto the banking, do a big slide, come down the pit lane, and there's cameras set up there. So we want you sliding on the banking and then come down the pit lane. So I'm like, okay. So no practice. You just go. And it's a manual transmission C7 Stingray. And so I go up there and I chuck it sideways and mad and I'm on the gas. It's like third gear, okay, fourth gear, you know, sliding up on the banking. This is kind of fast. And I'm like, okay, need to dive down there. You know, I go diving down um, and then do this big slide to a stop. There's the camera crew, boop, and hit my marks. It's pretty good, I thought. Um, they're like, that was great. Let's do another one. And, and so then I, I turn around to go back. And as I'm idling back, I hear rod knock. <laughs> oh, gee. Yeah, and I'm like, uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> and um, I don't talk to anybody on set. Like, right. they talk to me. The right. only person that knew me was Tanner. Right. So he was the only person I would so actually even, have a conversation with. So, like, even, like, Rutledge didn't know who you were? Nope. Rutledge okay. and Adam didn't know who okay. I was till the very end, and they were kind of mad about it the whole time, which we played upon, which okay. was kind of funny. Um, but that was, like, typical of what would happen. And then I had to, like, get someone's attention by clicking the radio. They'd send Tanner over, and I'd be like, it's got rod knock. And he's like, are you sure? I'm like, I shut it off right away. And you want me to start it again? It's like, yeah, go ahead and start it. Start it up. Knock, 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 knock. <laughs> shut it right back up again. You know, oil pressure lights on. Like, this thing needs to be on a flatbed right now or this this motor's lost. And um, and anyway, it ended up, I think it ended up getting warrantied and all that stuff. But that's like super typical of how a, a shot went. They would give me a vehicle. They would tell me where the cameras were. And then I would just go. And, and then they would yell cut when I was supposed to stop driving because I would just keep on going until I heard cut. Because, you know, sometimes they have long lenses, sometimes sure. they're panning you. you. And so either. you don't know when you're out of shot. It, it's not like when I did, I've done like TV or movie work where everything is very carefully walked through and orchestrated. You get practice shots. They'll put marks on the pavement, like put the car here. Right. Um, you see it in movies where you see the tire marks already. Obviously, they practiced it's, it. Yeah. Um, that's not what Top Gear was like. It was like, go do it. And that was the super challenging, but like the super awesome part about it too, because I had to develop that as a skill, like to be able to hop in something I hadn't driven, do something really dumb with it without hitting crew or hurting the car um, and, and make it dynamic enough that they wanted to use it. So for all of you kids listening, go away for a second. This sounds like porn. All right, <laughs> <laughs> come on back, kids. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> uh, so I'll tell you like a top gear story I I, I heard. Uh, this is uh, from you know one of the Ford people I know, uh, and they were telling me that Top Gear. This is when they were doing uh, uh, basically soccer with Fiestas. Do you remember that? Yeah. Right where they yeah. would play soccer yeah. with Fiestas. Yeah. And the story was that the Top Gear called and they said, I think we need like. I was either like eight fiestas, and you're going to get four of them back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I did. This is Top Gear UK. Yeah. yeah and, and, I, and, and Ford was like, okay. That's world's, the world's biggest car show. Okay. That's yeah. what. That's the yeah. way it was like. So I said there was always extra cars. That's what I meant. I, there's a shot that they used on the Grand Tour of me jumping, um, me jumping a Hellcat. Yeah. And basically, we were in this factory, uh, and we were sliding around in the factory, and that's a whole story in itself. But anyway... There's a, there was this loading ramp, and, I, and I, I said, you know, I can carry enough speed out of the factory that I can jump off this loading ramp. And, and, I, and I told them, you know, I'm like, it'll probably break the car, though, if I do it. 
And um, wow. not, they, so, not you, but the car. So they'll just tur- they just turned and looked at the Dodge guy, which I happen to know the guy, yeah. uh, Eric Heischel, and they turn and look and at Eric. Eric, and they go, yeah, there and you go, Eric. and and from SRT. Hey, Eric, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. And they just go, is that okay? And he and the, the way they ask it is like a leading question. Yeah. They're like, it's okay, right? Because <laughs> we have a spare sitting right there, right? And they're always like, yeah, it's fine. And did you break the car? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, I mean, I don't know how broken it was, but it didn't drive straight afterwards yeah. because you know it was either just you know I bent an yeah, arm Eric, or totally. Eric also races. You know, great driver. Yeah, he's a really That's how good I driver. met him. Was at one lap of America, like yeah. in the early two thousands. Very, yeah, very, yeah. very good driver. Cool guy. Yeah, really cool guy. Mm-hmm. Um, did a lot with the Viper. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, the SRT guys are a neat team, actually. I like those guys. Um, so, were you sad when it all kind of ended? When, you know, after eight seasons. Well, it was. Um, this is a perfect segue. It it um, it basically was. They were changing out the, the, the three hosts, yeah. which I didn't agree with because I thought the guys were really good. It takes a long um, time to get like that kind of and chemistry. It's rare. It's rare. It's so really rare. rare. It's like yeah, I think people. And it's funny because I'm sure if anybody knows that it's the Top Gear guys, and yet it's they a franchise. It's a franchise <laughs> yeah, show, and they keep yeah. and they and and I was talking to a friend of mine who actually tried out for Top Gear, right? Uh, and uh, uh, I think the magic is not just the chemistry, but I think you have to have people who know about cars, and not just know about them. Because right now the current crop of guys, you know, they're like enthusiasts. Yeah. But a comedian uh, enthusiast. Yeah, yeah, I always always felt, and maybe this is my bias, but I always felt like the show would be much better if uh, the the, the three hosts understood and like lived and breathed cars, which I felt like, you know, May Hammond and Clarkson did. Yeah. Or do to to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. And and if you get somebody who's like, hey, I'm an actor or hey, I'm I'm an enthusiast, it's just, it it, it doesn't. Yeah. They kind of waffle through it all. It's not. It doesn't have this. Right. This, it doesn't have like. There's the passion yeah, is missing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so was it was it sad when they? Well, bid adieu. Well, it, I was given the option to keep going. Okay. And so they were just like, "You're you're fine. You yeah, can keep yeah. doing That's this." That's a great thing about being. You can, the yeah, you can be the state at the end of time. You know, yeah. as long as no one f- finds out who I am, and I've yeah. been very meticulous about that, um, then then you can just keep going. But that was right when I had written the book. And, um, and basically, I'm like, this is perfect timing. I, I, I've been lying to everyone I know, basically. There were four people that knew that I was a stig. The rest of the people I had to lie to, saying I was going to go do this or that or the other thing. And that, that kind of gets old, as yeah. cool as it was. I'm sure, yeah. Um, and so... It's hard to live that I just thought, life. I'll never have this moment where... And I actually talked that over with Tanner, and Tanner's the one that's like, dude, you got it. You know, do it, and he and so he just basically pasted together two pictures really quick while I was at his house, and then he he put it out on Instagram, and he goes, "It's done," <laughs> and I went, "Wait, what did you just do?" Oh, so he, he outed you. you know, he outed me, and Tanner has like six or seven hundred thousand Instagram followers. So he really outed you. So it was done, yeah, right? There was no like, yeah. And so so it was really funny how it all went down. So I was like, "Thank you." Maybe I want to kill you, though. You know, so I wasn't sure. And um, and and the worst part was, of course, the next day, um, I got a call from the BBC lawyers. Oh, sure. And they said I had violated a $4 million NDA. <laughs> oh, God. That still was... In, in play place, for yeah. two more years. Wow. So I, I, you know, I thought it was okay to do it, and, and it wasn't. But, but then I got a call the next day after t- they let me sweat for 24 hours from the president of the BBC, and he said, you're good. Don't worry about it. Just don't go around wearing the suit. And I go, well, that's not what my intention right, is. Sure. I don't want to wear the suit. I want to use it to yeah. publicize that, my, uh, my book. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be kind of, um, well, dare I say, lame 
to be at the county fair walking around like the stick. Yeah. But you, you know how many people ask me to do it? Like it's like every time I do some sort of appearance, they, they want you to be the stick. Yeah, so I, I so I I go do appearances, you know, for different things, car, you know, based right. things usually, and they're like, hey, would you? And I'm like, no. I, yeah. I won't wear it. I don't have one, actually, because yeah. they always, you know, I would hand it back at the end of every shoot. And so then I decide not to go back. So they have all the gear. I never, I, it wasn't like it was in my possession. I'm like, well, I'll just keep it. All right. So let's talk about the book. Tell me about the name and tell me why you decided to write it. Okay. So I think, I mean. The name of the book first. The name of the book yeah. first yeah. is Optimum Drive. Right. Available on Amazon.com. Yep. And I'll find major booksellers. Uh, and it's uh, basically... You know, from my read of it, it's basically a how-to drive book, but it's more than that. Yeah, it's, and, it's and by the way, you, of course, helped. Yes, a little bit. Y you did. I, I hooked you up with the publisher. Yeah, it which, was really which, cool. It was really, it was which, really cool. I, I was not be good. <laughs> <laughs> well, it got, it got the book going, and it yeah. got me to finish the book. Yeah. So that was all before I had left. You didn't know I was a stick at that point. I was, no. I was already driving for you guys here doing yep. the track stuff. And, um, and so, yeah, I basically was, was in your offices, and you were doing... A, a conference call with the, this publisher about a book that you guys were writing. Yeah, Andre, Andre and uh, Mr. Truck wrote a book. Yeah, and so... I hooked you up with publishing. And so, and so Rome, Rome you know, to your credit, it was like, you kind of blew me away and put me on the spot. It was awesome. You're like, hey, uh, do you want to pitch your, pitch your book really quick? And I'm like, oh, because my book wasn't done. You know, it was only like halfway done. And so I went in and, and went into the conference room and pitched pitched this guy and he's like I love it and he, he they bought it like right away and I was like I guess I have to finish my book so I went home and I started write, writing and I finished it it took me really another six months to finish it and then um, and then yeah then it published in May of 17 and um, it's done really well so I have yeah, to thank, I have to thank no, you like officially it, right it, that, it, did, it did better than our book <laughs> don't tell Andre yeah. Andre sorry sure. sorry Mr. Truck <laughs> it, it, it's because it, it does it is kind of and they were smart about it too like uh, you know as far as the publisher they were I, I called it optimum driver and they're like just call it optimum drive and then it's like drive like motivation and I was like oh that's clever because it doesn't lose any of its panache as far as being a driving book but I just was a little bit more careful in my wording and everything making sure that it wasn't so specific like driving was just the metaphor right it was rate uh, you know top level race car driving and the whole thing was um, that the book, like I, the one thing we didn't talk about that I've done is that that I've worked for racing schools and uh, my whole life while I'm racing, and so and while you, I'm doing other yeah, stuff, yeah, while you, I'm being the stick. So, so you you've not only been doing it, but you've been teaching it. Yes. So so and and I wasn't just like an instructor, like for Skip Barber, I was the chief instructor of special projects group. Jim Russell, I was the director of training. I ran it all. Um, I, I wrote all the curriculums, trained all the instructors. I did ride and drive programs for, for decades. I still do it. I'm the chief instructor right now of the AMG Academy uh, for Mercedes-Benz. And so that and racing myself and doing a bunch of stig stuff, you know, all of these things were like different perspectives on the same thing, doing stunt stuff, all of that. Um, and, and then I also competitively mountain bike race. Uh, I did a lot of skiing and ski racing. I coached uh, a lot you know, in everything that I do. And so all of that kind of is this perfect storm in my head of I should write a book about this. And because I'd seen it from so many different perspectives and I think different sports and then going through my own, you know, sort of process and figuring all that out for myself, being a professional so, driver. So let's not give the whole book away. Uh, and, and if you guys want to learn how to drive better, definitely buy the book. But let's talk about how 
race car driving has made you more uh, in the moment, shall I say, has made you a better uh, instructor, better skier, better mountain biker. Yeah. What, what, because that's really the lesson of the book, right? What you can learn yeah. uh, and take into your life that goes beyond just you know being able to go around a track faster. Yeah, it, it's definitely, you know, once you do something well, um, you figure out a process. And then if you're very objective about that, you realize, wait a minute, this process kind of applies to everything. It mm. applies to relationships. You know, you, it applies to business. It applies to all these things. And, and then you, you start realizing when you start looking at it like that very holistically um, that so few people ever become at a level of something where they realize this process in their lives. And so it, I was like, wow, I've been really lucky in racing. Like, you know, your feet are held to the fire all the time in motorsports. So it's not like you can get along in racing being mediocre. You can, you can do it till the money runs out. But at that point, only people, you know, they, if they're going to pay someone to drive their race car, they need to have results. And to have results, you need to be competitive within groups of people that are hyper competitive. And they're smart, and they have resources, and they train like crazy, um, and all these things. So you're, you know, it's kind of almost, it ends up being like when you think of like how Olympic athletes are, where they're dedicating their lives to something, you know, eight hours a day, seven days a week, that's what they do, right? That's where, that's how racing ends up in your life. I think a lot of people don't understand that there was a significant shift from like the '60s when race car drivers were these playboys who, you know, who would it party got all serious. night. Yeah. yeah. To, to now, these guys are world class athletes. Yeah. World Speaking of triathletes, yeah. right? They're all they're all uh, doing something, something and yeah. they have to. Yeah. The g forces the car is in the heat inside of the cockpit while you're racing. Um, the, you know, all the stresses you feel, the mental challenges are insane because it's one of the three real sports, right? So it's always hanging in your head. Like if I'm bad at this, if I let things go sideways, um, this could cost me my yeah, life you're, you're, and my profession and all not, that. You're not going to eat donuts and smoke cigarettes and be a successful race car driver. <laughs> Except for James Hunt. Uh, yes. When you're watching In the Rush. movie. Yeah. Watching Back Rush. then. But, but now it's become very, it's so hyper competitive. And then you have data that measures everything nine ways to Sunday. Yes. So you can't get away with anything. Um, was, you know, we, we, we went, no, you drove the Technica, Lamborghini Technica. Yeah. And I drove the STO, yeah. uh, Big Willow. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I, I got a, just a little bit of a taste of that because they had the, you know, the, the telemetry equipment yes. on the car. Uh, and I was driving, and you know, Big Will, you go up that big kind of right-hander, yeah. and then you come down. Nine and, and ten. And, and then you make another turn. Well, that second turn before the back straightaway, I went off oh, two right. wheels, right? Yeah. I, I just got too wide, and I went off. Yeah. I, I got the car back on the track. And then the guy's looking at my telemetry, and he goes, there was like a spike there. And he goes, he goes that must have been a butt-clencher moment. I go, <laughs> hell yeah, that was a butt-clencher <laughs> moment. But, but, but that's That's what funny. that spike represents. But, <laughs> yes. but, but they know to the fraction of a second, like, you know, how much oh, brake yeah. you're applying. Oh, yeah. How much G-force is going, yeah. and and you know it's it's incredibly numerically and statistically driven, and there's nothing harder. It's one thing to put yourself up against, like that's why I, I love. There's two kinds of sports, right? There's like figure skating, which is beautiful. I'm not dissing any sport. There's like you know, but but those are judged by people. Yes. And then there's the ones that are judged against the clock. Yeah. And to me, those are the hardest yeah. because the, the clock stuff. There's no hiding. Yeah, it's objective, not subjective. Exactly, yeah. and there's no yeah. hiding. Yeah. It's, it's like you're, there's this shining bright light on yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> and that's the way racing is because, again, it, they're spending millions of dollars a year, and you're the lucky dude that gets to drive the car, and they're all looking at you like, you know, 
we could we could easily replace you if we had to, and we're investing and they would. millions, and they will, and they do. That's yeah. what I'm saying. So, so you have to perform at this really, really high level, and, and again, that's what, and especially with that, like the data you're describing, you have all of this. I mean, they can come and they can tear you to pieces if they want. Oh yeah, and they can put another driver in the car and look at his data and then compare it against your data, and they they can do all of that. So you're always under the gun, and so you figure out like you figure out like most people stop you know, getting back to sort of the book, most people stop when things kind of get hard. When when you reach the point of diminishing return on something, that's where people stop. Mm. And so that's about when you can get like decent at it and you can get like on the high end of average on something, whether it's jet skiing or skiing down a blue trail or the occasional black trail, you know what I mean? Like that's where most people stop. Um, but in the racing world, that's where you get to work. And just like any sort of professional, anything where you're talking about trying to strive to a level of, of not just competency, but excellence, that's when you get to work. But now you're in the realm of diminishing return, which means the time you were getting out of the time you were putting in, in other words, the reduction in lap time when you were only good at it, compared to the amount of effort you were putting in to get that reduction in lap time, it was pretty sweet. Like you were like, wow, I can put an hour into this and I can get a second faster on the racetrack. That's this me. is awesome. That's me. If yeah. I got and it's, it's like the, be- <laughs> it's, it's like the sweet spot, right? Because you feel like this is great because it, you feel like this reward to, you know, sure. ratio is fantastic yeah. for the, eff- the effort versus the like, reward. Honey, guess what? I yeah. can drop the second. It was so good. And you can imagine like the, you know, the first time you do anything, you feel super clunky and you can get into like Dunning-Kruger conversations and all this stuff here. But but you get you feel really clunky. But then as soon as you get like this little glimpse of competence, you're like, oh, I'm actually okay at this. And then you get big rewards, right, for any sort of time you put in. And you got to think like when you, I'm 30 years into this racing thing, like that's when I was went to France, like in the very beginning. And and now I'm so many years beyond that that now I'm out like putting in hours and hours and hours of time thinking and doing and driving to find thousands of a second around the racetrack. That's where I'm at. And and it's it's incredibly time intensive intensive. And expensive. And, and expensive. You're, you're putting through tires and brakes. And it, which is kind of a nice cars. thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so and so that's where um, that's where professional sports live is in this uncomfortable zone of this very, very unhealthy amount of effort, obsessive amount of effort that goes into trying to reach a level of greatness rather than just being good at something. And so that's what my book really dives into is that mindset and then a process as an approach to go down that that rabbit hole. Uh, and again, most sane people will go, that's really stupid. I'd rather sit on the couch and watch football. Um, and that's what most normal, smart people will do. But if you want to become really, really good at something, I've got a process for it, and it works in anything. So, so Paul, I have to say, by the way, Paul Gerard, um, last name, if you're looking for the book on Amazon, um, I have to say, you're, you're not making the sale of this book easier because what people want to hear is, here's a pill. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, take, yeah, yeah. You take this, and tomorrow you're going to be, you know, uh, you auditioning Neo's for the thing. though? <laughs> 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 he, they, he took the pill, and then he had to get to work. I know. Yeah, so it's, but, but, it's the fantasy versus the reality. Yeah, but it's, like, I know, I four, could say. In, in four easy steps. That's you, right. You, Read my book and win a world championship, guaranteed. In, yeah. four, in four easy steps, you'll move up the company to CFO or whatever your <laughs> yeah, goal is. Yeah. Yeah, it's not going to happen that way. It's it? not, but it, it always is that. But but the, the reason people don't start, you know, it's like that, that 
that journey of a thousand miles starts with one step. They don't know the step. They don't know that first step, so they never start the journey. And, and so that's where the process comes in. And again, you decide how obsessive you want to be, how far you want to take it, how, how good to great you want to be, right? But all it is is providing a process to do it that you could apply to anything, and it'll make you learn through that good stage much faster as well. All right, so let me throw a monkey wrench into this. Do it. All right, because, you know, I used to do a lot of triathlon. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it seems to me that there are certain people who are just naturally gifted. No. At, 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 I'll, I'll give you an example. Okay. I'll give you the, probably the most classic example I can, okay? Yeah. Uh, Lance Armstrong. Yeah. You know, he started out as a triathlete. Yeah. Right. And the very, I think the very first triathlon, the very first race he did, yeah. he won. Yeah. He, he won the race. Yeah. First time. Yeah. But what did he do before the race? I think he worked at a bike shop in Texas. And trained like an, a I, crazy person. I, but I'm just saying there's, there is a level there, of there like is. natural talent that, that, that helps a lot okay, when you start so that journey. This is in the book. Right. Okay. Let's, not, not to give the whole book away. But this is in the book. Um, so, so natural talent. And it, my chapter in the book is called The Myth. Of natural talent. Of natural talent. Well, that's, why I, that's why I'm challenging you. Yeah, so, so here's, here's the thing. Because like, I've seen this. I've seen this so many times with prodigies, right? And, and so there, is, there are people that can learn really fast. Th that is a question of simple intelligence, right? That's IQ stuff. Sure. I am not very high on that scale. Right. I am persistent. That's how I get to levels on things. I'm just persistent. My yeah, intelligence... I think knowing you, you also work very hard. Yeah, but that's it. That's what I'm saying. Hard you have, but like for someone that's hyper intelligent, they can they can pick up this stuff, whether it's calculus or 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 the, how how to come up with a process for training for a triathlon. They can just do that quicker, right? Right. And so and so that's the big differentiator. And then if you're smart, you don't tell people. You know, Lance doesn't go and go. Yeah, I've been training eight hours a day for the sure. last ten hours. He and they're like, this is your first triathlon. That's ridiculous because most people go to their first triathlon and fail, and then realize they need to train eight hours a day. You know what I mean? Like, that's how most people do it. But occasionally, some people prepare really, really well, and then show up at their first event, you know, and, and do really well at their first event. And everyone goes, wow, you're just hugely naturally talented. And I always find that to be like, it's a bit, it, insulting's too strong a word, but you're discounting the work they put in. Mm. Uh, and I've seen that with karting, where people racing kart, like go-karts, right? We call it karting. Um, and they're very fast. They're not like the indoor carts or the little carts. Outdoor right, karting is, 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 is serious. serious racing, yeah. 120 mile an hour, With nothing, 2G. nothing around you. Yeah, yeah they, I mean, it's intense racing. And, and they, they start them out doing that at six, seven years old. And then they plunk them in a race car for the first time and they fly. And they're like, wow, what a natural talent. Because he, he's already been <laughs> racing for 15 years. You know, like this, this guy's got so much seat, or girl's got so much seat time at this point. And so that's where, if you, if you dig into their backstory, you'll find out that intelligence is the differentiator, and that's just rate of learning. But the, the downside to that is that they get things easy, and so because they didn't have to work hard for it, they'll just leave and go do something else. Mm. Where, where if you put in, like, years learning to drive a car well, you're going to stay with that. Yeah, because you've, you've Because you realize if you're going to go do something else, it's going to also take years to yeah. get good at it. But if you're, like, super smart and you pick up things really quick, those people tend to jump from thing to thing and get bored really easily. So I don't know if that's a blessing or a curse to be super smart in those areas because you, you don't have that, that time invested where you stick with it things. It could be both. It could be, yeah. yeah. And probably the really good folks 
do both. Yeah. Yeah. As usual. All right. Uh, so head on over to Amazon, Ultimate Drive, Paul Gerard. Uh, optimum. Optimum. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Ultimate. You did optimum. that so I could say it again. Yes. Optimum, optimum Drive, Paul Gerard. In stereo. Uh, and check it out. Um, and, uh, you know, in the last few minutes that we have less, left, let's talk about some of the recent cars that you've driven and let's talk about uh, what you thought of them because uh, the beauty of Paul is he can get behind the wheel of a car and in a lap or two he can like dissect it to a point that, you know, I could never get to with years of driving. <laughs> so uh, the last program you went on was the new Mustang uh, Dark Horse, which yep. is, uh, some people say, well, Ford says it's the new generation. Most journalists believe it's a refresh, uh, basically the same powertrain, uh, same chassis to lesser or greater extent. Uh, the last um, true uh, muscle car left standing, right? The Camaro's gone, uh, the Charger Challenger twins are gone, so now there's only the Mustang, at least in internal combustion engine form with a V8. What do you think of it on the track? Well, um, first of all, I, I, the last time I had driven Mustangs, I drove three iterations, and one was a GT350, and it was for the uh, actually the opening sequence of the Grand Tour, the very first episode they ever did. Uh, and there with was the a flat-plane crank. Yeah, the flat-plane crank one. There was also the 700 and some horsepower one that I drove most of the time that, that Jeremy drove. No, it was before that. It was an aftermarket one, oh. and then one was a Vaughn Gittin junior gotcha. uh, yeah. Mustang as well. So we had three different Mustangs, one stock 350, two modified ones. And so that's, those are the last ones that I drove. And, uh, and I liked them. And funny enough, I liked the GT350 over both the modified cars, even though it wasn't quite as fast. Um, and so, so that sort of was my perception. And then I went to Charlotte. <clears throat> this is quite a few years now. So there's a big gap in between, but I've driven the Camaros in between. Yep. I've driven notably, um, you sent me out to do the Cadillacs Right, the, the black wings, yeah. the four and the five, which were yeah. brilliant, by the way. Go watch those videos. Um, those cars are amazing. Um, and and so I arrive at Charlotte to drive the Mustang, thinking like that, like this is you know we've got basically the Cadillacs left, really. Uh, one, you know, one's a supercharged V8. Uh, they're not really they're four doors, so I mean I get it, it's different. They're not pony cars. Right. Um, but. We're, you know, we're, grasp, we're grasping yeah. at straws now because we don't have a lot. To, <laughs> we don't have a lot to go on, so we have to kind of pull in cars from other categories almost. Um, and and so I went out and I drove it. And and first of all, the track like Charlotte Motor Speedway, I've driven on before. They've redone it quite a bit. And they have this big interior road course, so it's not just the oval. And um, but they had us on this little tiny thing. I mean, it was terrible. It had yeah. it had two right hand ninety degree corners, and it had five one hundred and eighty degree. Second gear corners. So, so this is kind of a mismatch of expectations and uh, uh, program. C keep in mind that when um, manufacturers let us go on the track, uh, they understand. Even though we hate to admit it, that we suck. <laughs> that's why you're. That's why you do the car track reviews and not me. So, so they're very uh, leery. They're very conservative of, of letting yeah. automotive journalists. Yeah. Because there's a big difference between being an automotive journalist and being a race car driver. And there, there are automotive journalists who can who can pull the two roles together, but they're far and few in between. Mm. Uh, and so th then they're never like really eager to let us loose on a full track with you know, a lot of speed, yeah. uh, sharp turns, stuff where it's easy to get it wrong. And so um, the last time they actually allowed us to do that was when you went on the Lamborghini program at Big Willow. Um, and, you know, I was, you, at you, I was at Thermal. You were at Big Willow. Oh, you were at Thermal. Okay. Yeah. At Thermal. Yeah. And you were actually like, you were actually 
quote unquote racing the, their test driver. Yeah, <laughs> I, I had the guy that had won the championship, super guy, uh, amazing guy. And, yeah. Um, and yeah, and he and I just went out and played and we yeah. had a great, but that's normally like how it would go. But we were on a we were on a reasonable track there at Thermal. There, it's not the best track in the world, but at least it's got a combination of things. Which one um, were we on? Because there's a bunch there. At Thermal. It was the let's see the one on the right when you I guess the north course. Yeah, yeah, okay. The one. The it's one, the normal yeah, one that usually one, not is, the yeah. one that goes all the way around the house. Correct. Yeah, okay. yeah. I, uh, I, and I actually did some Top Gear stuff there too. We ran the whole thing all connected together backwards. Uh, the last season see, of Top see, Gear. I got to drive the uh, is it the M4 competition on yeah. that on that one? Not, not the one you buy, but the one the race car version. Oh yeah, cool. You know what I mean? The one that they yeah, take all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I looked like the Michelin Man to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that you know going in, going into the car, I was already feeling you know chubby right. and rotund. So <laughs> <laughs> then you get in a racing seat, right? And then I get in a racing yeah. seat, which I don't fit into, and then of course you got the helmet with the air, right? Yeah. Uh, and then you've got the modulating brakes. Are you six three or six four? I'm six. Six two. Six two. Yeah. I mean, he's a tall, tall guy. Yeah, I'm, yeah, so I'm five head, seven. My head's always a little like. You know, yeah, it's, he, a, it's, a, it's a, always a little crooked. Hence the jockey thing. It's like it's a good thing for cars, especially race cars. And then, then we got to it was like a lead follow, uh, mm -hmm. which you know, uh, it, it, it in itself isn't that that crazy because you know, the, 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 hopefully the professional is not going too fast. But then, like the automotive journalists get into like a competitive mood, and there's always one guy who like does track time, so he's the one like pushing the race car driver to go faster. And then there's me, like you know, like completely. <laughs> like, can we uh, slow down? Can we go again. into the pits, maybe? Be <laughs> I mean, <I> mean, great. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, and I'm the guy. I'm the other guy making your life miserable. Yeah, and, and then of Generally. course, yeah. I think the biggest difference, of course, between for me at least, from being on the track. To being on the road is it's a completely different braking style, right? On the track, completely different. On the, on the track, it's like full on as late as possible, yeah. right? And you're used to coming off the road where you slowly apply yes. pressure, and that that does not work it's, on a racetrack. It's degressive versus progressive. <laughs> progressive right? yes, we yeah. pro we brake progressively on the road. Yes, we brake super hard at first and then slowly reduce braking. And, on and the that's track. a hard thing to get your yes. head around. Yeah. Well, that's I mean the fact that you even know that as a is a feather in your cap that's yeah yeah that's so that's that's way one step up on most people that i see and, at events and, and, like that and of course this car was super light and it had you know race car brakes and yeah. so they're incredibly powerful yeah right you're like you like look at them and the car goes everything roman doesn't like <laughs> <laughs> No, and the things that terrify me, that's all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I always get a call after those programs, like, I should have sent you on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the norm. I'm like, you should have. But, but, yeah. but see, the problem is uh, Paul needs a video. You don't need one, but it would be helpful to have a videographer yeah. with you, and sometimes they don't allow that. Yeah. And then I'm stuck, you know, going on this program in my fat uh, Michelin man suit. Anyway, uh, so, <laughs> so, so they, they didn't let you loose on the big track. Yeah, so it was a really, it was a really tight track. So it's these second gear 180 degree corners, like by, a ribbon. By, by the way, just so you know, the, the, the manufacturers don't like it when we bring race car drivers. Yeah, I, I believe it. Yeah, because because you're, you're actually going to like, you, you know, yeah. you, you could. You, 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 I'm going to get blacklisted. Yeah, you get blacklisted. But but with journalists, the manufacturer could be like, look over here, not over here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? totally. But with you, you're this is where you're well, looking. They, they but they generally like I'll tell you like the Hyundai one. Yeah. The um, they loved having me there, okay. and, and I like did debriefs with the engineers. And the guys they flew over from from Korea. And, and by the way, they they were like they gave them this uh, prototype oh, the electric car. car. Yeah, yeah. And, oh. and, and, and the engineers and their race and their like uh, test car drivers were afraid to drive it. Full I did it. <laughs> and then race car drivers are crazy. I did, the quick, I did the quickest autocross lap, the quickest track lap, and and the quickest. And lap they were in, like, "How did you do that, Paul?" <laughs> But it, yeah, see, those are fun. So you're right. I mean, there sometimes they 
the Mustang guys, I don't think necessarily really liked having me there, but um, the when I did like the the Type R Honda, those guys were super accommodating. They liked it. Yeah. Um, and the Hyundai guys were over the moon. They, they really liked it because they're like, oh, you'll give us really you'll give us really granular feedback, which is kind of to your point of what we're getting at here with our Mustang discussion. Yeah, yeah. and from a TFL point of view, I mean, if you design a car to be track worthy, yes. then, then you know you got to give it to a track driver. Yeah. Because that's the way that the engineers design the car, so yeah. that's the way it should be evaluated. Because they try and slip them in under the radar if they're not really well developed, um, and and they can do that if the drivers who are testing the cars can't feel that. And uh, and actually, like the the Cadillac guys were awesome too. Like they were super. And they, I ended up doing debriefs with those guys as well with their engineers. They're like, "Tell us what you thought." Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. But it's like you go to some of them and they're like. Don't tell us a thing. Like we, we you know, we're trying to we're trying to do a smoke and mirrors act here, um, and so it's interesting when you go from one to the other like that, and they're they're very different. Um, and crazily enough, it all depends on how good the product is. Yeah, yeah. Like if the product's really sorted, they're incredibly open and transparent, and they love having me there. And if the product has some issues, then they're not so happy. So, so before we talk about the Mustang, I'll, I'll tell you a car um, that everybody. I'll tell you a car that everybody loves that I, I hated. Do it. I love to hear this. All right. So uh, thank you, Porsche, for inviting me to go. On, is, it was the small Willow track, the, the like the urban. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Streets of Willow. Streets of Willow, yeah. Streets so, of Willow. So I, I took the uh, GT4 RS. Yes. Uh, which is this beautiful. Why was I not there? Yeah. Why? Beautiful car. You know, it had the Weissbach package. Weissach, yeah. Weissach, yeah. Weissach, mm-hmm. I would say that wrong. Uh, and we did a lead follow. Uh, the car in front of us was a Porsche 911 Turbo, but the lighted, light-weighted one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the amazing thing, the, the good thing I'll say about that car is the amazing thing was like, in a straight line, the Porsche just... <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, turbo. Yeah, gone. just gone. But around the, 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 the turny bits, oh, yeah. I could keep up with them. Yeah. So beautiful car, beautifully executed. But but were you screaming the whole time, or were you having a good time? Uh, no, I, I, I was just pissed off <laughs> at how loud and how, <laughs> how uncomfortable and how I like I like I like. If you're going to design a street car uh, for the racetrack, I, I, I give you you know big thumbs up if you can because right there's two. It's like. Well, you know, it's like it's like the off-road world, right? Everything that makes a car good off-road makes it really bad on-road, right? A lift yeah, gives yeah, it yeah, worse fuel totally. economy. It's all compromises. Everything, Everything is a compromise. And the same thing happens with street and race yeah, cars. Yeah. So I, I love I love street cars that you can take on the racetrack. I don't like race cars that you can take on the street. Right. Because the only thing I kept thinking to myself, and it's got these incredible in, induction. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. It comes Intake in right, tubes, like right, right, right behind, behind your, your head. Ear, right, right. Yeah. And the only thing, I, and, and the steering is so quick, but but it just becomes like a, uh, McLaren's do this too, right? When you're not a 10 tenths, you feel like you're like this, uh, purebred racehorse that just wants to like <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. you're, you're like holding it back, <laughs> yeah. right? It's just no yeah. fun. Yeah. Uh, and I thought to myself, if if I like took my wife to dinner in this car, um, I would get like two blocks before <laughs> <laughs> you, the whole before dinner. Be you'd like, be like dreading no, the drive home. We you wouldn't, wouldn't no, get there. We wouldn't get, get there. there. No, yeah. she'd be like like a block into it. She'd be like, pull over, let right. me out of this thing. Right. Uh, and I know, I know. As an automotive journalist, I should be like, wow, that thing was incredible. You know, the sound, the induction note. But I'm just thinking to myself, like, who is buying this car? Yeah, you know, yeah. Who is buying this car? And, and maybe the answer, unfortunately, becomes people who 
maybe taken out of the track, but maybe because it's such a, you know, the RSs of the Porsche world are now so highly collectible that it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. It's just because... An investment opportunity. Yes. Or they're just like, yeah, yes. even if I don't like it, I can flip it. Right. You know, kind of thing. And I, and I kind of, I haven't driven the GT3 uh, RS yet. Yeah, uh, but I also feel like that—that's going down. That's that. pretty serious. That's a serious car that's with a serious s- downforce. That's actually like a—that's a, actually a, a game changer. That car, the RS, right? Uh, because of how adjustable and aero it is, where it, it's very close to a GT3 race car, and they can get away with it a little bit with the magneto rheological shocks and all of that, where it has a comfort mode. Um, they can they can close the exhaust flapper valve. They can do all that, right? But um, but, let, let me but give it's you- never going to be. A comfortable but, road but car. Let, 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 and I'll, I'll get to the heart of the matter. Why, like yeah. that car, just didn't didn't like click with me. Uh, and I know I'm I'm not preaching to the choir here. I'm actually probably going the wrong way. But behind the store is a, is a Raptor R, yeah. which is the most off-road worthy uh, outside of the TRX truck you could buy. Mm-hmm. And yet you could drive that thing every single day. Perfectly fine to drive. Perfectly fine. Yeah, you they're can, actually because and and you can fun, tow with it. Funnily you, enough, like those trucks are super cushy yes. compared to a normal pickup truck. So they actually ride better. Those long travel yes. trucks actually ride better than normal pickup trucks. And outside of the fuel economy, so, you, you could drive it every single day. Yeah, you could take your wife. Your outside kid. of the fuel economy. <laughs> outside of fuel economy. <laughs> but that's also race cars. Yeah. But so to me, Ford yeah. there has actually done some magic by making this vehicle that you could actually go on the probably couldn't take the Baja One Thousand with it because it would break, <laughs> it would fall apart. But you could you could certainly take it. You know, to Wait, you talk, you're talking about the Raptor. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Good. Yeah, yeah, We're yeah, not yeah. talking about a Mustang yeah. right now. No. 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 About the Raptor. Right? <laughs> Just to be clear. But, but, you, but, you, but anything you ever want to do with it as yeah. an amateur, you could do. Yes. And and, and you'll still be like a ten percent of its capability. Well, I think, but that's that's because so why of why can't off- Porsche do that? Well, because it's because it's different. Because okay. it, right, explain to, that to my me. point. Because okay. having thirty six inches of wheel travel, mm-hmm. right? Um, or, or more like a normal road car has, you know, and then you get into a truck and maybe, you know, a normal road car has about three or four. And then you get into an SUV that might have six or seven. Then you get into a pickup truck that might have eight. And then you're getting into these vehicles that, that have 20 plus, right? That have real wheel travel with real actual motorsport quality damper shocks on them. And so with all of that, so it can take the whoops and it can kind of do Baja, you could go, you could, you know, you could make a good, you could jump it off a dune and you can, you can get six, eight feet of air in a Raptor and not break it. Yes. You know, so, so that's, that's kind of awesome. So all that stuff that you're adding capability, when you're talking about the compromise, the compromise is you're adding cushiness, <laughs> which makes the ride nice. But in racing, you're going the other way. You're going, you're going away from compliance and you're adding firmness to gain, like, I want to go from 1G to 1.2G to 1.3 to 1.5 to get to this Porsche GT3 RS now that can do 1.7, 1.8G. That is a stiff car that can do that. you got to control roll. you got to control pitch. And, and so that's the beauty of the truck is to make the truck a more extreme truck. You're actually making it a softer riding vehicle with longer travel. But to make a race car, you're taking that that travel but, but that you need. But that's a challenge. That, yeah, but 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 just inherently in the physics of it. And so they do the they do the Magna ride shocks and they uh, but but it still needs a firm spring when it's on the track. It still needs a firm bump rubber. It still needs a big thick anti-roll bar, all of those but, things. But like that induction note that everybody like swoons yeah. over. Yeah, well that you, they you, could put a flapper valve on that and get rid of it you, if they you, wanted. Yeah, you don't have to have That's a choice. I want to say uh, the decibel level in that vehicle when you're accelerating, it's got to be like 100 and 
10, 115. It's like a Pink Floyd concert in the 70s or Led Zeppelin. Yeah, it's, it's that loud right behind Yeah, you. we're that old. That's so, my reference. So, so, you know, th there's no compromise there. Yeah, no, but they could. So, so, so like, that's so, choices. So, that's like, choices. Porsche's doubling down on that's their, choices, on their yeah. race heritage. Yeah, yeah, that's choices. They, they could make that car, w again, with just a little, a little bit of a, a couple valves here and there, just like they do with their exhaust, but they can make it as quiet as a normal car. Yeah, and, and that's a good analogy. They can make it as quiet as a normal GT be, be car. the Raptor, too, right? It's, it's got uh, four different... Uh, exhaust notes. So it's yeah. got quiet, you know, if you want to leave late in the morning or late at night. It's got normal, which is, you know, sounds like a great B8. It's got loud and it's got Baja mode. Right. So why can't, you know, these are the compromises that a good engineer could make yeah. to make the car livable, right? They so, could to, do it. so to me, and, I, and you're with me on this too, right? When you make, you know, the, I love, we used to call them um, dual sports. Now they're called Enduros again. Yeah. So we started out Enduros and they went to dual sports. Oh, we're talking about motorcycles yep. right now. Motorcycles that can go both go on-road and off-road. Same problem, right? Yeah. Uh, and yet because of technology, because of software, uh, you can now have a pretty competent Enduro that is good on-road and yet is also yep. capable off-road. Yep. But this car is so laser-focused. Yeah, and I think, I think that's intentional because like you're saying, that's choices. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be. I think the Turbo is a pretty good example with Porsche where that car is pretty darn quick but also very livable because yeah. you're going from a, a, you know, the, basically a GT car to a sports car. You know, so those are two different genres of vehicles. And yeah, you could build one with technology that kind of bridges that gap. But but they're you know they're, they're they like making lots of variants of cars so I think they're doing that on purpose to have all these variants fair enough because those are all profit centers so, for them so Porsche if you're listening and you're doing a program uh, we've got the man right here to <laughs> I'll to, happily come and drive exactly. especially the fast stuff and I'll I'll uh, you know that that's the thing to me and it, I would love to be on those lists it was great to get to go do the the the, the uh, Technica yep. and um, and to do the CTSVs and you. all of that thank stuff thank you Jordan that uh, stuff's from that stuff's fantastic but I want to go do some Ferrari stuff and you know any of the any of those launches that are going on even I, I want to go do some me and you how about I'll be a videographer okay. you can be the videographer yeah. and you do the driving there you go yeah. Ferrari you can do the first lap and go okay it's not for me and then I'll jump in it from there <laughs> just to be sure you know, what, you know what that sound is that's the sound of crickets from Ferrari <laughs> <laughs> I think even to get on the I pair. haven't even driven a Z06 yet so. neither have we yeah so I, Chevy if you're listening we'd love I, to get I need to do a track thing in a Z06 because that car's supposedly amazing and judging by how good the GM folks are with the Camaros and the Black Wings. I, I, I believe it. I'm going to give you, I just talk about this, I'll talk about this again. So we just bought a, a C5 Corvette that yeah. Tommy ended up buying and then we bought a C6 Corvette and I, I made the comment that like everybody, all the cool kids want like a Lotus Evora. Yeah. And I'm like, guys, for like, I think we bought that C6 for 20 some thousand dollars. You can get yourself, a, but, but because it's not the cool yeah. car, because it's the old man car, people yeah. somehow you know, and Corvette has always had that issue, right? Until recently, it's always been kind of the, the yeah. old man car. And yet I think GM has done a lot of really interesting engineering. Anyway, that's a whole nother yeah, podcast. It, it is. So it is. tell me about the, the dark horse. Are How we going to talk about the Mustang? Yeah, let's talk about the Mustang. <laughs> so now that we got through the track, <laughs> you know. Um, so so I, I jump in it and I drove the car. And I'll, to be honest, like my, my original first lap out impression, which is the one that's on the video, um, was, and I wish I'd done another one because I was like initially like super impressed because what I felt right away was like, wow, look how responsive everything is. So that was my first thing. And as I kind of went out and, and it, they were only giving us two laps. So, so it was like a warm up, you know, a couple laps, boom, bring it in. So the second time I went out, 
um, I was driving the car much harder and then, than uh, that first session as I was getting acquainted with the track. I'd never driven the track before, by the way, that, that configuration. So I had to learn all those tight corners and all that, all normal stuff. And um, I'm like, holy cow, you know, for my first impression of the brakes was they're so powerful. But then I realized once I, w- I had moved my braking point down to where it needed to be, which was three markers past where they recommended we were braking, um, you know, the, when I did that, you get into the ABS right away, which is fine. You know, I'd rather it not kick in quite so quickly because it's the system's like super over boosted. And then once you're in the ABS, you're kind of in this quagmire of brake feel. So, so it, it gets very hard. And so, like you can apply, we were already talking about braking and how in racing we apply the brakes really hard, aggressive braking, it's that super hard application. But the caveat to that is we always release really smoothly. The brake release is always really slow. And it's also very important. The brake release is not just when I'm done braking, but it sets the balance of the car at the turn into the corner. So it's incredibly important as a tool. You can't get a car in a corner well if you can't release a brake very granularly, which is the word I like to use. It's just very fine little micro one pound adjustment, just perfect balance the car turns in without understeering or oversteering too much. Um, And so when you're in that quagmire of ABS, you lose that ability. So the brake release becomes this sort of mushy, unpredictable thing. And, and for all of you guys who haven't seen Paul on the racetrack, the first thing that we always do, or he likes to do, is obviously turn off all the aids, right? Yes. Just be the Because that's when you can really tell how a car is set up. That's, that's, you find out the bones of the car, not yeah. what they've masked with electronics. Yeah, because once, yeah. You, once you have the electronics, you can cover up a lot you of things. You can cover up anything. Yeah. Which is what they used to do with the old Corvettes, by the way, which you don't need to do with a C8 now. The mm-hmm. C8 has such good bones and such good natural inherent balance and capabilities so that turn, turn it all off and it's brilliant. Turn off trash control, turn off stability control, control, everything. But else. you can't turn off ABS, ABS. obviously. That's, so ABS that's, comes in too early. So it comes in, it's over boosted. So it doesn't take much pressure to trigger the ABS. And then once it's in, it's very hard to get out. So, so that was the thing I sort of learned on that second one. Especially then, with the grippy tire. Very grippy tire. Yeah. yeah. And it, it only, and the tire lasted for just barely those two laps. It would start to get a bit slidey. Mm-hmm. Um, so not great longevity on the tire, but boy, the G numbers, 1.5 G under braking. Like that is a, that's a monumental number, right? Yeah. Um, so eye popping. Yeah, it is kind of eye popping for a road car on a non R compound. I mean, it's a Corsa RS Pirelli, um, so it's a good tire, but um, it's not like a Pilot Cup Two or Cup Two R. It's not a track focused right. road legal tire uh, like you have on your GT4 RS. We were talking about. So, so, um, so that was kind of the downside there under braking was it, it, it was very difficult to modulate the braking. And then the other part to that car was the steering. And I use the same word again, very overboosted. Mm. And so, yes, it's an EPS, EPAS system, electric power steering system, which, you know, you know, we can talk about negatively forever and ever. Um, they're getting better. They're getting, well, they're getting better, right? But They're getting better. Um, I, I get in my car when I get back from the airport with its hydraulic power steering, and I'm like, that's what steering is supposed to feel like. And this car is? Mm-hmm. What car is that? My Evo. Okay, your Evo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or sure. the Porsche. I, you know, I have... You know, a 2001 and a 2003, you know, and both have hydraulic, yeah, yeah, Boxster S, and both of those have really nice steering. And so I noticed that when I come back. Um, But yeah, so the steering so overboosted. So what that means is they're using a really fast ratio. Um, So that means very little turn on the wheel required to get a lot of turning out of the rims, out of the tires, right? So, so it turns in like crazy, but so, so you need, you're saying you need a uh, yoke to <laughs> yeah, get the most out of it. <laughs> yeah, you could use a yoke because you know. So it's a fast ratio, it, and it's and it's over boosted, and so what that means is you're you're getting and it's non-linear. So so you're getting a lot of turning, and 
for very little for very little movement of the wheel and and you're also therefore not getting much feel coming back through the wheel so it's very numb and and it doesn't provide feedback let me give you examples um so when a tire approaches the limit you have in your steering geometry like you'll feel that limit approaching because the tires slip angle forces are building and the tires are twisting and twisting and twisting on the rims and then eventually they let go right and so this twisting you can actually feel through the wheel you can feel the weight change you can also feel slightly different vibration sort of tonality through the wheel. The wheel, you can feel it moving in your hands ever so slightly as these forces build. And then you can feel the inside tire, it'll slide first. Uh, you'll feel the inside tire let go. And these are the things that you use in a good, a good steering system to judge the limit of the front tires. So there's information there. Now, 99.98% of the population doesn't know what I just talked about. That's race car driver stuff but it is absolutely track driving stuff. Like this is what you want steering to feel like. You want granular feel in your steering so I can judge the front grip of the car. In other words, I don't have to get to the understeer point and do it on experience. I can feel it in real time whether the car front's gonna slide or not and I can hold the car at that moment before it slides. So I know it's making maximum grip there and then I can balance the rear to do the same thing. And I also couldn't feel the rear very well in so, the so, car. So the outcome of all that is the fastest possible yeah. turn. Because, yeah, because you're you, optimizing you, the tires. You're, you're at the limit of adhesion, but yes. not, not... Yes. Yeah. Like the so you're, this is a little tiny window of peak slip angle where the tire is just holding on and then boom, it lets go and slides. Mm. And so what you're trying to do is hold it right at that peak and, you're, and then you're trying to do that with your front tires. And then once you get comfortable doing that with your front tires through steering feel, then you're trying to do that with your rear tires also through what you feel through the seat of the pants. And that was also a little bit of a problem with the car because it has a Recaro seat, it's an optional seat. And Recaros, by the way, I, amazing seats. I have them in, uh, the Evo comes with the cars, they're fantastic. But these ones in the Mustang are a little bit soft and bouncy vertically. And so I'm not getting that feel through the seat back mm -hmm. that I really wanted either. So it's funny, Andre said this the other day, we were talking about this a little bit. But he goes, it's kind of video gamey. I go, that's exactly what it is. When you take the feel out of a car, you turn it into a video game, which is really funny because we always complain about simulations not having feel and you spend all this money on this $1,500 Fanatec wheel with force feedback and pedals with feedback, you know, just so you can get this feel on your, um, on your uh, actual simulator. And it's the same issue with road cars with electric power steering. They don't have good feel and you don't have good pedal feel. It's hard to judge everything on the car. And so it does get a little video gamey. And that's where this car is. And again, comparing that against, and, and it's fast. 1.5G braking, 1.38G cornering, right? Those are, those are big, big numbers. Well, but it just doesn't feel great doing it. I would say we could compare it to the Camaro, but we can't. <laughs> yeah, well, I can compare it to the one I've driven before. And, and the Camaro, yeah, has e an electric power steering system. And no, it's not as good as my Boxster or my Evo, but it's it, it has much more feel in it. And the Cadillacs are the same way. You can judge front grip through those systems. So it's still, it is possible. And the Porsche um, systems are, like you said, getting better, quite good. You can feel front grip through the Porsche systems as well. So, so this is not something that I'm saying like there are no cars that have feel. I'm just saying that in this particular car, they've overboosted the system and taking, taking what possible feel there could be pretty much out of the equation.
Well, guys, thank you for spending this, well, it's been an hour and 15 minutes with us. Uh, and uh, uh, Paul and I decided to do this because uh, we'd like to get Paul on more podcasts, maybe even get his own. Uh, so in the comments below, let us know if you like this uh, bonus episode. Uh, and if so, we would love to get Paul uh, and all of his contacts, all of his friends uh, on a separate uh, podcast, you know, kind of aim more uh, at the enthusiast slash racer community. You know, the stuff we do tends to be kind of the every man or woman stuff, right? Yeah. But 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 Paul lives a world, uh, you know, that is that is very popular now with Formula One racing, and we want to take advantage of that. And we want to take advantage of you and your expertise. So let us know in the comments what you thought. And Paul, thank you. And uh, check out his book, please. Go to Amazon.com. It's not Ultimate Drive. It's Optimal Drive. <laughs> we'll only Optimum. Make, only make that mistake. <laughs> Optimum. Drive. God, Roman. It's been a long day already. Already. Uh, uh, on Amazon. Uh, and uh, thank you very much, dude. Thank you, Roman. Much Always fun, fun yeah. to chat. Yeah. We'll Always see you guys fun. Next Thanks, time. guys. Ciao.